good. All right. This morning, we are, uh, this sermon's called, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. You've Lost That Love and Feeling. And it's basically things we don't want to talk about but need to. Things we don't want to talk about but need to. So I'm going to start with one that's kind of, kind of on the line of we don't want to talk about it, or better, it's on the line of nobody is really saying this. Um, and maybe this is just in my world and it's not in your world or whatever. But what I've noticed is that um, there's, there's a wall that's, being, that's trying to be built on the border of America. You may, might have heard about it. Nobody's heard about it. Nobody's heard about this. It's in the south, and it's going to be a big wall. And, and I, I just want to speak to that just, just a second, just a second with that. Um, when it comes to the church, in my position as a pastor concerning the wall, just as a pastor, not as an individual or an American, two different things, just as my position as a pastor, um, it is the government's job to secure our borders or not secure our borders. It is not my job. It's not my job. My job and your job as the church is to reach people with the gospel regardless if there's a wall or not. So if they come here and, and that is happening, they meaning different nationalities and stuff like that, if they come here and they move into our community, our first and foremost uh, goal, job, vision is to reach them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The government takes care of the rest of it. I don't have to determine whether or not they should be here, whether they should go home. I, that's not my position. It's not your position as a church, as a believer. We reach out and try to reach them with the gospel because that is important. So if they're deported, they go home Christians. Missionaries, right? If they stay here, they're Christians and they reach other people. I mean, that is our job as, as believers. So whether whichever way you, you are on that wall, and I'm, I'm a certain way I'm not going to tell you, but I can tell you afterwards if you ask me about it, um, but, but my, my position on that is, yeah, we, we need to reach these people with the gospel and let the government take care of their little issues that they have. Amen? Right? That's, that's what we're going to do. So, now, to the second one. I would like you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. James chapter 5 verse 17. the lights in the room a little bit brighter if we can get them that way. And it, it could... Yeah. Okay. Alright, verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now if you do not know who Elijah is, Elijah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He, he's, a, he's a pretty significant prophet. Did a lot of miracles. A, a man of God. And so for this to say Elijah was a man with a nature like ours is to say that, yes, he was called to be a prophet, but he was still just like you and me. He was still flesh and, and bone. He was still man. And he prayed fervently. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. 
So a man with a nature like ours was a fervent prayer. You and I can be fervent prayers. We can pray for things. We have that ability just like he did. And he prayed that it might not rain. Um, I think that maybe you should start praying that prayer down. I think, I think this is a text for today. Uh, I, it, it's been raining for quite a while now. And I've got this leak outside of my room. It's not, a, it's not a leak. It comes down a drain pipe, and it, it does this when it starts to rain lightly. Right? The first person to hear it is my wife, and then she makes sure that I hear it. I have not fixed it yet. I think I know how to fix it. But that's where I start getting into problems. So it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. If you're praying for sunshine, please do not pray that it will not rain for three years. And don't do that. Just, just a little relief from it, some sunshine, and then we can get back to some rain. We need rain. So not rain on the earth. That he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That is a fervent prayer life, isn't it? That's pretty powerful. That means that this must be somebody that knows how to communicate with God, communicates with him on a daily basis, and really gets his attention, and prays according to his will, and things start to happen. This is not the only prayers that um, Elijah prayed in his lifetime. Here's some other ones. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This is a situation where he met a a widow that had some sons and they had jars, right? And they were empty. They didn't know what they were going to do for food. And so Elijah prayed for her and God gave him an answer to her dilemma. And the answer was, Um, You do, the jar of flour shall not, you feed me, and the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug shall not run empty, and his prayer was answered. His prayer was answered. Pretty significant prayer. Here's another one with Elijah. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. So what happened here was there was this lady, she was married, she had a roommate for Elijah to stay whenever he passed through the village. He could stay there. She also asked him to pray for her to have a son. Well, that's not really true. He prayed for her to have a son, and she conceived, and she was amazed that 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 had happened. Well, this son died, and so Elijah is calling out to God to raise this kid from the dead, and God hears and answers his prayer. That's an amazing prayer life, isn't it? It's fervent in prayer. Here's another one. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Now, this is a situation where they're on a mountain, and there's a bunch of bell worshipers that's been dancing and cutting themselves all day long, trying to get their God to rain down fire on their sacrifice. 
nothing happened. In fact, it was so comical that um, Elijah made fun of him. It's okay to make fun of people sometimes. It is. Elijah did it. I could do it too. All right. Okay, back, we're back here. So they prayed and prayed. At the very end of the day, Elijah did this. Now, it hadn't rained for three and a half years. I don't know where they found the water. But he soaked his sacrifice with water so that when God answered his prayer, there would be no doubt that God answered the prayer. Right? And it wasn't just because someone was smoking on the side and they threw the... You, you see what I mean? It, their embers in there and started fire. So they it drenched it. And so he prays this prayer and fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. That's amazing, isn't it? Amazing. That is one of the times in the Bible that I would have loved to have just watched it. You know, just watch that occur. Watch the bell worshipers doing their song and dance, prancing their ponies, whatever they were doing, trying to get it, and then Elijah just praying one time and boom, it happened. It would have been absolutely incredible. So Elijah was a man that was fervent in prayer. Now, great man of God, great believer in God, example of prayer for us, Here's his next prayer in chapter 19. But he himself went a day's journey, that's Elijah, into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. Just to make this clear, this is a prayer of suicide. Now, you and I don't want to talk about this. We don't want to talk about suicide. Some, sometimes because it's just such a dreary and dark thing to talk about. But we, we, don't want to, we don't want to talk about it. But what we really don't want to talk about is this truth. People that believe in Jesus and have them living inside of their heart can still get so depressed that they feel like ending it all. They feel like ending it all. See, we would like to think that if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll never be depressed and you'll be happy the rest of your life. That you'll never get so low as to think that I want to take my own life. But I'm here to tell you today that even Elijah the prophet got to that point in his life after huge successes. And you and I, too, can also get down to that point. Back when I was um, up in Lynchburg, Virginia, just in school, and I was going to Heritage Baptist Church up there, I had a, I had a small group of teenagers. Um, and I invested in those teenagers. Later on, when I moved to Kentucky and we took a church up there, those teenagers, those guys, came up and helped us with what we called Vacation Bible School. Okay, You might have heard of that. Um, we don't do that here. We do Summer Spectacular. But nonetheless, we, we did that up there, and they came up and helped me. One of the guys in that group helped me paint Aurora's baby room. That's how close we were. So he's painting. I'm painting. 
for having a great time. Two years later, that individual took his life. It's a great kid, believed in Jesus. But somehow or another, he got so low that he took his life. A little bit closer to home for you, and I'm even going to name the church. A few years ago, over at Vianna Baptist Church, pastor went out on a sunny morning. He went for a walk in the woods, and he took his life. A pastor, someone that preached Jesus every, every Sunday morning, went out into the woods and took his life. This is stuff that we don't necessarily want to talk about, but I think we need to mention it. I think we need to talk about this a little bit. Because at any given point, you and I could be at that point to where we want to take our life. You might be sitting here today saying, I've never been there, I'll never be there. You don't know. You, you just don't know. So, a few things about this. Um... And I think you're going to have to turn to um, 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you'll do that with me, I'm going to draw some stuff from this passage, and then I'm going to talk to you about, about this. 1 Kings chapter 19. Verses 5 through 8 says this. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. I still would like to see one of those. I, I have pictures in my mind that you don't want to know about. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. An angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. If you ever get to the place where you're so depressed that you do not feel like eating, the first thing you need to do is arise and eat something. You need to eat something. And as hard as it is for you to get out of your bed and to get something to eat, you need to get out of your bed and get something to eat. There is something to nourishment. There is something to have something. And it might not even taste good, but you need to eat it all the way anyway so that that energy can get back into your heart, into your soul. Part of depression is a physical thing. And the weaker you get physically, the more mentally weak you get. And so you need to eat something. And so this was, God knows what he's doing. Look at verse 12. It says this. And after the earthquake and the fire, because he's having Elijah hear all this, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard the sound of the low whisper, he wrapped his face and cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So first, you eat. Second, you need to understand this. The God of the exciting times and the mountaintop experiences and the times when you're happy is the same God that is with you in the low times. The God of excitement is also the God of non-excitement, if I can just use that word. Even though it doesn't feel like he's with you, he is with you in that moment. God loves you and he cares for you, but he cannot you cannot survive, he knows this, on a spiritual, emotional high for your entire life where everything's happy all the time. You can't do it. You have to have the low times. You have to have them. If you do not have them, you don't know what happiness is. We have no clue what happiness is. 
And when you are brought low, you need to understand, if you get into that position, that the God that was with you in the great times, and the times that, that was absolutely incredible, is also the same God that is with you when nothing is happening in your life. He hasn't left you. He hasn't left you. And I would say it's, it's just as significant. The journey of, ha, ah, yay, is just as significant as the plain times. It's just as significant. God often speaks to us in a, in a low whisper. It, it's, it's sometimes not as exciting as we want it to be, but God still speaks to his people and he still cares for you. So, depression can come after big achievements. Here's another thing. If you notice in the scripture, Elijah isolated himself from the rest of the world. Depression is often the worst when you isolate yourself from everybody around you. If you feel like you are backing up and you just want to be alone, that is the moment that you need to step out and with courage, even though you don't feel like it and your body's saying no, step out in courage and go get in contact with someone. The Bible says that Satan goes around like a lion that wants to devour. That's what the Bible says. If you have ever watched the animal shows, have you ever watched the animal shows? No? Nobody's watched the animal shows? You've watched the animal You can talk to me. I know this is a serious subject, but have you watched the animal shows? Have you ever saw lions hunt people? Or not people. Sorry about that. That would be a great animal show, wouldn't it? What's the name of that book where, where they fight for the lives and their stuff going after them? Never, never mind, you don't want to know that. Anyway, nonetheless, no. You watch these lions and they go after like a gazelle. That, that, that makes me feel a lot better, okay? They don't, go, they don't go after the healthy ones that are with the pack. They go, they go after the weak ones that have isolated themselves from the pack. When Satan is looking for a Christian to attack... He's looking for the one that's weak, that has isolated themselves from the pack. The best thing that you can do when you're depressed is surround yourself with people, even though you don't feel like you want people to be around you. Do not isolate yourself. Don't do it. Now, if you're sitting here and you're depressed today and you're hearing, hearing me say, don't do it, don't do it, I don't want you to feel guilty if you have done it. That's not the point of this. My point is, if you feel that way, take the steps that you need to take to get around people that care for you. And even though you don't feel like people are caring for you and you feel all alone, I guarantee you that there are a lot of more people in your life that care for you than you realize. They are there. Go after them. Do not believe the voice that tells you you're alone. Don't believe that voice. You are not alone. I am going to tell you that as long as I'm your pastor and I am alive, you are not alone. I'm also going to tell you that as long as Jesus Christ reigns as king, you are not alone. And if you have to choose between me and him, choose him, but call me. Okay? Hang on to him, but call me. Call your mom, call your dad, call your sister, call your best friend that you don't think cares for you in your Call somebody and step out. You are not alone. You have a purpose. You have a purpose God has placed you here for. Now, that might make you feel guilty. That might make you feel more depressed because maybe you feel like you're not achieving a purpose. 
What I want you to get from this is you are a person of value because God loves you and he thinks that you're a person of value. Do not believe the lie that you are not worth anything to anybody. You're worth a lot to the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot to him. So much, and I say this every week, but it's so crucial, that he gave his life on the cross of Calvary so that your life would be saved and so that you would have meaning. That's why he did it. That is the answer. You have, you have a purpose. I know this has been said a lot of times, but I want to say it again, just in case you've never heard it before. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it causes more pain than you realize to the people that love you, that want you around. I have never, ever done a funeral where it was a suicide situation where the room wasn't packed because the people that loved and cared for that person and that family were there to help them grieve for something very valuable that they had lost. Do not believe the lie that you are not valuable. You are valuable. There are people that love you. There are people that want to come around you and help you with this particular thing. You need to reach out and get the help that you need. You need to do that. Amen? Start with Jesus, start with me. Than anybody else in this church. This church is very unique. I will tell you that I would trust you literally going to anybody in here and talking to them. I would. They they have, this church has a, um, a dedication to Jesus and a dedication to ministry that is rare in this day and age. And so you, you, this is a safe place. This is a place that you can come and, and get help. All right. We're done with that. Y'all good? All right. Now, next. You've lost that love and feel with things we don't want to talk about, but you too. Um... I don't know how to start this. Have you have you ever like watched teenagers when they're just starting to figure out how um, attraction and being in love works? Have you ever have you ever watched that? It's it's an amazing thing. There, there's a lot of similarities. Now, teenagers, I'm not making fun of you. You won't understand what I'm saying. On you just and I'm not I'm not making fun of you today. But it but it absolutely it's absolutely an incredible thing. So what I've noticed is that um, I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm just stating a reality. So, and if you think about the people that you go to high school with, you'll know what I'm saying is true. There are people that have fallen in love with someone one week, and then the next week they fall out of love with them, and then they found someone else that they're attracted to that they fall in love with, and that's the person that they're with. And then there's some infatuation going on, Sometimes they're in love with somebody that they can never have. And so they go after them. Most of the time, on this side of things, at least from my perspective, it's guys that fall in love with, with girls that are way out of their league. Way out of their league. Just way out of their league. And they don't realize it yet. 
there's also this thing with guys that um, we tend to fall in love with high-maintenance girls in high school. High-maintenance, right? Girls tend to fall in, in love with high-maintenance guys, but they're high-maintenance in a different way. They're bad. They're just bad. They do bad things. They, they, they're doing wrong things, but they're cute while they're doing them. And, I mean, it's just something attractive about the degradation of a man and everything. He's doing wrong and sinful, which I think corresponds to uh, Eve and the apple and trying to make sure that man is sinning with them. Um, this is having a little fun, Okay. So, so you have you have this thing you have this thing of like being in love, and so some people are in love. They're being in love. They're in love here. They're in love here, and they're in love many times before they get married. Okay. Um, opposites attract. Wouldn't you agree? You okay with this? Okay. My wife has dated more people than I could ever know. She has. And she's good with this, so don't don't feel uncomfortable. She's good with this. She gave me permission. She shook her head. I just wanted y'all to see that, because that that could have implications that you shouldn't go there with. But she she instead of weekly might be every other day. She would like a different guy or, or be interested in this in high school and do all this. I, on the other hand, was absolutely clueless in high school. Right, Nathan? Just absolutely clueless. In fact, I look back at pictures now. And people tell me that that person liked me. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. People in these pictures, the girl, there's, I'm not going to tell you which, but there was a girl here and a girl, and they they were into me, but I wasn't into them because I was just clueless. I was just living life, playing my trumpet, having a good time, going through life, you know. you know. And, and I looked at people that dated people and thought, what a waste of your high school career. Right? And I would look at them and think, I don't even know what, why you would want to do that. I'm going to be married the rest of my life. I'm not going to do this here. You're a little bit too serious. That's just the way I thought about it. But I was just kind of clueless with who liked me and what, whatever, okay? But then you get to college and you start thinking, maybe it's about time that, you know, I start thinking about people and who I could marry. And, you know, I was at a school that most girls got their MRS degree. M-R-S. It's not a bachelor's, but it is a bachelor's. Let you know. So I began looking, and you know, you know, Christian girls are just yeah. And back when I was going to Piedmont Bible College, when it was a Bible college, there wasn't really many good-looking girls there. So I got one from Liberty, right? Um, got one from Liberty University. That's a good place to find a girl. And and I married her. I fell in love with her, and I married her. And so we we walked down the aisle, and we said, "I do." I was attracted to her. I hoped that she was attracted to me. Um, I was thinking she was. But but we, we went through all that. So here's the thing that we don't want to talk about, but we need to, okay? After you say, I do, and you make that covenant with, with someone, that person that you just said, I do, to, is not going to be the last person that you're attracted to. He just said, yes, I did. I did. And I know you're quiet, especially the guys, because you don't want your wife to know. Okay? 
And I know the ladies are quiet because they're like, hmm, has he been attracted to somebody? Wait a minute, I've been attracted to somebody. If you let that soak a minute, you have said I do to somebody, and you've met somebody else like three years later that has that attractive beginning, I'm falling in love tendency that you have because opposites attract. You, you follow me? And nobody ever talks about what to do with that. Nobody ever talks, talks about that that's a reality that happens. That you can actually be attracted to someone else once you are married. So, I want to take a few moments and talk about that and unpack it. So, turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll begin reading with verse 22. And this is what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The two shall become one flesh. So, a few things. First of all, the two becoming one flesh does not mean that your spouse completes you. We have bought into that because of Jerry Maguire. Living room setting, he comes in, he speaks to the girl, he says, you complete me. Okay. Okay. She actually says something totally different that is actually the take home from that particular scenario. She says to him, you had me at hello. So one flesh does not mean that Nicole completes me and I complete her. Let me tell you, if you feel incomplete in your marriage, it is not a marriage problem. It is a spiritual problem, and it's a problem between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only person that can complete you, period. When I received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, it's at that point in my life that I was complete, not before. 
It is not when I married Nicole that I was complete. It is Jesus that has completed me. She did not complete me. One flesh is not a completion. It's not that. That's not what that means. And I know a lot of you have never heard that before because you really thought Jerry Maguire was a preacher, but he's not. It is not a completion. It is something different. It is different. Here's what one flesh means. Number one, a helper for you. I married a helper. God created Eve to be Adam's helper and Adam her helper. She is to submit to him. He is to treat her like Christ treats the church and submitted himself to her and died for her. A helper. One flesh means I help Nicole, Nicole helps me. Number two, it means companionship. Marriage is supposed to be permanent. It's supposed to be permanent. I have a permanent companion for the rest of my life in Nicole. You have a permanent companion in your spouse. Whether it's your husband or whether it's your wife, you have a permanent companion. That is one flesh. Number three, one flesh means family. God put people together in a marriage relationship so that they could procreate. So that they could reproduce. So that they could have children. And so that that would be a healthy thing. Without the marriage relationship, by the way, marriage is God's ordinance and not government's. It's a separate thing, but I'm going to go back to this. So God's ordinance, the reason he did that is because he knew that if a guy had children with this woman, this woman, this woman, this woman, and this woman, it wouldn't be healthy for the kid. The kid, kids, come on, you can shake your head. There is something with one man staying with one wife, having children, and raising them that creates a better environment for the rearing of children than any other way that we can do it. God knows what he is doing. It's for companionship, it's for family, it's for a helper for you. And fourthly, it's to mature your love. Marriage is put together so that you will grow beyond being in love. There is a difference between being in love and loving. There is a difference between the excitement of all this being in love, ha ha butterflies, and mature love and loving your spouse. It's two totally different things. In fact, marriage cannot sustain being in love. It can't do it. Being in love, first, first and foremost, is based on attraction. It's based on who? It's based on. It's based on, baby. Yeah. We're going Jamaican. Okay. It's based on, right? It's based on attraction and that woo feeling and that likely feeling. Loving is more mature and it's a deeper sort of love. If you're basing your, your marriage of whether or not you're in love or not, if you're being in love with that person or not, the next time someone attracts you, you are going to go astray. Because being in love is all about you. Maturing in love is all about your spouse. Two totally different things. 
If you listen to people that are in love, it's, oh, he just does this for me, and, and he does that for me, and he's just so cute and smart and enlightens me. And on this side, he's just saying, man, she looks good. She holds me, I feel good when she's around, and it's just that sort of thing. Notice my voice is deeper because, you know, yeah. Okay, so being in love is totally different. It's superfluous. But after you get married, you mature in love. Being in love is not sustainable. God did not institute marriage for your Disneyland experience. Come on. God did not institute marriage for your Disneyland experience. You will not be happy all the time. You will not be happy all the time. Listen, it's no wonder that Paul tells you not to get married. That's in Scripture. It is better for you to remain single, is what Paul would say. Because it's work. And it's not Disneyland. So, what we've set this up, and we don't want to talk about this either, is we've set marriage up to be a soloist sort of thing. Okay? So, I'll start with the guys. The guys, you know, um, we're the leaders of the home, and sometimes that drilled in so much that that family should be all about the man. So, the wife serves the man, it should be all about the man, what he wants. The kids serve the man, it should be all about the man and what he wants. That is a sol soloist environment. Okay? On the other side, and, you know, this is where I get a little leery, but I'm going to say it anyway. We set the woman up to be the soloist in her marriage. See, when, hey, I'm glad you're sitting in front row. And I noticed your uh, fiancé is missing. She must have left. I, I'm kidding, and they all know that. You don't have to, yeah, we're good, we're good. Yep. So, the wedding day. We say this phrase. It's all about the bride. It's what she wants. It is her day. And so we set up girls, ladies, to think that, that it's all about her when they do this, and that doesn't change once they're married. We set it up to be all about her. She's marrying this guy. And then we step into marriage and it's hard for her to switch over to, it's no longer just about you. See, when you're a soloist, you're doing everything for yourself. How many of you have ever played instruments? Yeah, great. I used to play the trumpet. <clears throat> I still play the trumpet from time to time. I just don't do that much anymore. I don't have, have enough time. But um, I used to play the trumpet. I was, I was a fairly decent soloist. Fairly decent. Fairly decent. Would work on it. It was all about the tone I could get out of my horn. It was all about the solo that I was about to do. Yeah, I was in a bigger group, but really I had to focus on me, my solo stability, my playing ability to make sure I could play. A conductor is totally different. A conductor isn't worried about me. A conductor is trying to get me as a soloist to do the best I can do and buy into his interpretation of whatever piece we're playing. He's also trying to get the rest of everybody else in the band to adopt his vision and his interpretation of whatever piece of music is playing. When you go from a soloist to a conductor, 
you're more concerned about the group as a whole and what they sound like than you are about your personal achievement. Is everybody following me? The same, in a very stretched sort of way, is the way marriage works. You were a soloist for the first part of your life. Your mama told you that. Your daddy told you that. Grandma and grandpa told you that. And you lived your life as a soloist. It was you graduating from college. It was you graduating from high school. It was you achieving this. You achieving that. When you get married, you it is no longer you achieving. It is you and that person achieving. It is no longer a soloist thing. It is a combination where you become one flesh and you live together for the rest of your life. Now, the analogy of the band falls apart right there. Okay? Because my job now that I am married is to add value to Nicole. That is my job. That is the commitment that I made to her on that day when we got married. My job is to add value to her. Do you know what her job is? Her job is to add value to me. It's not me over here trying to add value to myself as a soloist. It's not her over here trying to add value to herself as a soloist. It is us working with each other, investing in each other, adding value to each other, and setting ourselves on the back burner. Is everybody tracking with me? That is marriage. So my focus is to make her better tomorrow than she is today, and her focus for me is to make me better tomorrow than I am today, and we invest and we figure out how to do that, and it takes a lifetime to figure out how to do that. That is marriage. That is marriage. We cannot do it in a soloist sort of way. Being one flesh is when you decide that your spouse is number one, and they decide that you are number one, and y'all do that for the rest of your life. That's marriage. That's marriage. If you're trying to make a name for yourself, you're a soloist. If you're trying to make her all that she can be, you're not a soloist. You're helping her. If you're trying to make a name for yourself and your family, that you're the one in control and you control the man, you're a soloist. But if you're trying to add value to him on a daily basis, you're not a soloist. And it is seen in marriages. You can tell the marriages that have soloists and the ones that are actually trying to give value to the other individual. Therefore, I represent my wife everywhere I go. What I do reflects on her. She represents me everywhere she goes. What she does reflects on me. And it's not because I'm a pastor. You're the same way. You're the same way. So everything I post to Facebook is a reflection on her. Everything she posts to Facebook is a reflection on me. It goes both ways. We add value. So, when you live your life like this and the attraction happens because it will happen, you go back to the covenant that you made before each other and before God. That's what you go back to. You go back to that covenant. Well, y'all are really quiet. Are y'all okay? I'm getting a little worried. Right? You good? You go back to that covenant. 
You see, back in 1996, I made a choice. I made a choice to love and cherish Nicole for the rest of my life. That choice gains meaning. Follow me here, and please don't throw stones at me. It gains meaning when I find myself attracted to someone else, but instead of choosing to go that way, I go back home. Come on. Instead of responding in a sinful way toward that attraction, I do things to make sure I do not pursue it, and I go home. Ladies, same way. You see someone you're attracted to, you go home. Men, you see someone you're attracted to, you go home. And you note those individuals. Those are the individuals you cannot have a close relationship with. If you're attracted to them, you cannot have a close relationship with them. Somewhere down the line, something's going to win. And so you go back to the covenant and you say, I have given my love to this person. I am going to be loving because being in love is not where it's at. Loving someone for the rest of my life and letting that love mature is where it is at. So we don't want to say that we've been attracted to other people. But we need to say it. And then we need to go one step further and say, and every time I go home, every time I go back to my wife, every time I go back to my covenant and to my promise And that is what I'm going to keep before God and everyone else. Amen? Amen. That is how you do it. When you add value. All right. So, enough of that. Here's the final thing. Okay? When someone comes to you with something private that they need to tell you, Because people have secrets. You have secrets. I have secrets. We all have secrets. There isn't a one of us in this room that doesn't want our closet open. Come on. We don't want the closet open. But when you come, when someone comes to you and they're about to tell you something that is just very very delicate and it's something that might shock you on the forefront your immediate response is twofold it's to listen and give them grace it's to listen and give them grace it's to listen and give them grace it's to listen and and give them grace. Do not judge immediately. Do not jump on the truth that you want to tell them immediately. Listen and give them grace. Then be slow to speak. Because you need to be very careful with your words. Slow to speak. You need to figure out what the truth is that you can tell them in a very graceful, loving way and word your words right. Because the thing you don't want is someone to bear their soul to you and then you judge them harshly and then they close it back up. You want them to trust you enough to tell you. 
So you listen, you show grace, right? And then you speak slowly. Then, after you leave that setting, you speak even slower. Look, there is a addiction to some type of something that goes through our bodies chemically when we have a piece of information that we know someone else would love to know. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's subtype. Look, I have no um, scientific study to say that this is true, but I know it's true. You know what I mean? It's something, and you're like, oh, I just, Travis, oh, no, be slow to speak. In fact, I would go one step further and say, don't speak at all. Don't speak at all. This person has just gave them, gave you their heart. Very sensitive issue. They have trusted you with it. Keep your mouth shut. I'm going to give you one reason that you should tell somebody. If that person is thinking about killing themselves, you tell someone else. Okay? You have to. If they are in harm's way, you can tell someone else. But if it is something, anything else, be slow to speak when you're with them and slow to speak afterward and just don't tell anybody else about it. Don't tell anybody else about it. We don't like to talk about that. Right? We don't like to talk about that. I'll tell you this. When someone tells you something that they didn't want to talk to you about, don't talk to someone else about it. You will hurt them worse than you realize. You will hurt them worse than you realize. Quick to listen, slow to speak. August people said, Amen. Let's stand, sing a hymn of invitation. The altar's open. I'm here to pray with you. And um, if you want to join our church this morning, present yourself. It's one of the steps. You can do that this morning. But let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer.